check, check. David T. Miller, folks. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. Oh, it's Artcast, it's Artcast, it's Artcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen by your easel, maybe you can grab a chair. Or even take it with you like you ain't got no care. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. So sit back and relax and grab your headphones too. Adjust your volume, it's hotcast. Philip J. Mellon welcomes you. So sit back. Oh yeah, it's Artcast. Loading artists. Audio inside. Loading artists. Audio inside. Hey, and welcome to Otcast. Be sure to check out the artist's websites or otcast.com and check out the work and links. All right, let's get started. Greetings, listeners. Fairhaven, Massachusetts-based painter Ron Fortier is on the program. In my chat with Ron, you'll find details accounts of his past, present, and even what the future will hold for some of his paintings. Along with a healthy list of artists from the lineage that is his rich, continuing story. Lots of materials, shop talk, as well as the challenges inherent to abstraction and narrative work, as he works in both concentrations. In addition to being a painter, Ron is also the host of South Coast Artist Index's own In Focus podcast. With that, he manages not to jump into interviewer mode along the way. So listen in and enjoy. Thanks. To start things off, Ron Fortier talks about the In Focus podcast as part of South Coast Artist Index. One of the one of the aspects of the Artist Index was to have a database that was fed by a membership platform yeah um one of the membership levels was uh the artists themselves it's basically little yellow pages directory kind of a thing that they could up up keep you know uh and do what they wanted with it one would be for people who are uh want to um create a legacy for a loved one yeah um who was it today they just had Somebody mentioned, oh, uh, I interviewed uh, Jane um, Ferris Richardson, and um, she mentioned two individuals from UMass or SMT, SMU back then in the art education department, yeah. uh, Dante Vina and Peter London. So imagine her being related or otherwise, uh, resurrecting them. Because yeah. she has 
primary first-hand knowledge of these these people. Yeah. And then the other one would be for researchers saying, hey, well, I'm looking for this. It's almost like a, a trading card kind of a platform where, okay, I've got this information that I can't use, but I really need this information. And it's sort of a trade thing. It's for scholars and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and then all that, as well as the transcribed podcast, would be put into this database. And it's too complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, uh, it, you just need a bigger team and, you know, some funding, I guess. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Yeah, that's exactly it. I almost went into uh, podcast host mode just a second ago. Like, so, um, you know, what have you learned from all these years of podcasting? <laughs> hey, it can be a conversation. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, if it's got to be. Let me know whenever you're ready. Yeah, I mean, I think we're already working on it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Ron Fordio, welcome to Oddcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. It's an honor. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, just about a spin on the Boston accent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, I'm curious. Let's see. What, where can we go with this? Because I definitely have a list of questions. Sure. And, uh, you know, you already talked about your podcast a bit, so... It's it's funny, I guess. Like in a sense, like we're old friends now, at least via, uh, you know, various podcasts and video video chats. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <Yeah. clears throat> I guess we'll just jump into the art and then see what see where where it goes. Okay. Yeah, and I guess I was curious about like what were some of your earliest art experiences and when do you feel like you got serious about it? Well, to tell you the truth. Um, I don't think there was ever a time where I wasn't not painting, drawing, creating, whatever you want to call it when you're like three years old. Yeah. Uh, my, you know, um, my mom preserved one of my, my earliest drawings. Um, uh, I've got a, it's back in Portugal with all, you know, my, my studio of stuff uh, that hasn't come over because of the pandemic. Uh, it's cause I had a studio set up there. Um, and I was um, a single, uh, uh, an only child. Uh, my my parents split up. My mother left my father when I was uh, not even a year old, and uh, uh, we moved, or she moved to um, uh, New York. Um, <clears throat> we lived between Madison and Fifth, uh, across the street from Mount Sinai Hospital, the main main entrance. It's either the um, high nineties or low hundreds. And uh, her uncle was a, a Portuguese language newspaper publisher. And um, he ended up in New York uh, based on the research I've done on him. Um, either A, he was a rapscallion, or B, he was a victim of circumstance. And it all goes down to a Catholic priest that he was going to publish a story on. And he found the full weight of um, um, the local... Um, local boys, let's put it that way, that came bearing down on him. Uh, some of them had connections, and uh, they got him into a, a load of trouble. I mean, we're talking federal-level investigation in the whole nine yards. Uh -huh. So anyway, <clears throat> he was a, um, a maven. He was uh, an insatiable culture uh, uh, freak. And... Um, my memories of him are with my arm in the air, <laughs> you know, because yeah. you know you're a little kid, 
and the smell of cigar smoke because he's constantly had a stogie in his mouth. And um, he lived across the street from Mount Sinai Hospital, but he was also an elevator operator. So he had the elevator operator uniform, the blue thing. I thought he yeah. was Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, <laughs> you know, that, when I first saw Captain Kangaroo, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, he took me to uh, or we went to galleries and museums every single day. Wow. In his off hours. I mean, it was a constant. He walked my little legs off. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And um, uh, when I came back to live with my father for a short period of time, and then you know my mother returned from New York, um, uh, I remember in Catholic school at Immaculate Conception in New Bedford, um, art was very, very big. Um, there was a, there was a student, a friend, um, his name was George Cardoza. He was, his family was from Madeira, the Madeira Islands. And um, George, um, even like in third and fourth grade, had this uncanny ability. He taught himself how to draw by looking at cartoons yeah. on television. And he sketched what he saw. So it was basically, uh, you know, rapid, you know, if you've ever had figure drawing class, the rapid gestural sort of things. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, so, you know, I remember that vividly and then going into high school, um, it was the same thing. I was fortunate to, um, to have, uh, it was a former instructor of the Swain school. Uh, his name was Francisco Raposa. He was an exquisite watercolorist. Uh, but as a lot of the, uh, artists in this area at that time, he also had to be supported either by teaching or advertising. And advertising was a pretty big industry around here. Um, so a lot of these guys would end up doing all the slug cuts, you know, the, the illustrations for all the retail, you know. Yeah. Um, and he um, was academically trained. Um, I don't know. I just liked him a lot. And uh, he took me under his wing. And he helped me prepare for my portfolio for college. And I got in on the first shot. Yeah. And um, to tell you the truth, I never ever thought of anything else until um, uh, Herb Cummings. He was, he's still one of the giants that I stand on, on the shoulders. Um, there's four of them from my experience at Southeastern Massachusetts University, which was the precursor to yeah. um, UMass, UMass Dartmouth, Dartmouth. Uh, University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. And I always, you know, enunciate and do the whole nine yards because you never know who's listening to this and like, what the hell's that? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, with us going to SMU, it was, our big problem was like, uh, no, not Southern Methodist. It's a nice school, but that's not where I go. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so anyway, um, he came up, uh, up to me once and... Um, He's actually the one that uh, admitted me into the into the college. Well, it wasn't even a college back then. It was the art department at SMU. And he says, what are you going to do when you get out of here? Oh, I'm, I'm going to paint and sell my paintings. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I can still see the look on his face. He's like, <laughs> God bless you, but no, it doesn't happen like that. Because you got to you, you, you got to teach. You know, you need some some money coming in, so you got to teach. You're like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Like, um... <laughs> No, doesn't work that way. 
doesn't? No. You have to go to grad school. Why? Yeah. Well, you need an MFA in order to teach. Oh, talk about being totally out of the loop. Yeah. <laughs> Having no idea what's going on in the world. Um, so I ended up... Um, um, is this too long of an answer? or? Uh, no, I just... Well, you're giving us a brief history, which is nice. A little intro to uh, you and some of your yeah. early experiences. So that's cool. Because it's all connected, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you know, it just just from knowing you for a short while now. I mean, you definitely have roots in in New Bedford, and you have the the stories to share, which then spills over into your podcast. So it's it's yeah. really kind of makes a lot of sense. So going back to um, my undergraduate days at SMU, um, there were four instructors specifically: um, Herb Cummings, uh, who uh, was a Zen Quaker. Uh, you'll have to ask me about that later on because I'll, I'll get just stuck on him. Okay. Um, Ed Tonieri, um, he was also a uh, instructor <clears throat> and could have been an interim president at the Swain School of Design in New Bedford. He was also the developer, the developer of acrylic paint. Oh, so wow. I, I was taught by the guy who pretty much invented acrylic paint. Yeah. Uh, was was on the team. I mean, he didn't do the chemistry, but um, um, you know, he was involved with it. And um, then there was Bill Elliott, um, sort of. Um, um, he taught us about tactility. Yeah. Um, he was very uh, empathic, um, kinesthetic guy. Never answered any question without first stroking his beard. Uh, staring off at the space, taking out a cigarette, you know, it was like torture, pretty much. And then it was Frank McCoy, who was from, from Kansas, I believe, or one of those flat states. And his mantra was um, big, flat shapes, which I told you how ignorant I was. In my mind, you know, my, my adult-pated uh, 18 to 22-year-old mind, it was like, of course he's going to talk about big flat shapes. He's from freaking Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I didn't appreciate him until one day I was teaching a, a drawing one-on-one class at uh, Community College of Rhode Island. And I was getting a little frustrated. And I blurted out, it's really simple. It's big, flat shapes. Oh, my God. Uh. <laughs> like, sorry, Frank. <laughs> It just hit me. <laughs> I'm like fifty something. Yeah, like like I'm stuck. You know, they're like, what is he? Who's he talking to? It's like, sorry, Frank. It just hit me. I'm like fifty something years old, for God's sakes, and I just got it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's it's it, it's it's been my life. I mean, you know, I was the only child um, until my uh, parents each remarried. Uh, so my my uh, legally, let's see, you know, quote unquote, my step brother which is my mother's son and my stepfather's son uh and my half brother which is my father's son and my stepmother's son uh are 12 they're, they're born like uh two months apart oh um oddly enough and um <clears throat> um so i pretty much grew up alone and i yeah. i don't know if you're an only child but um i'm not only but... child yeah oh i'm the only boy so i kind of was alone <laughs> 
pretty much, yeah, pretty much. Uh, you either a doll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that. Right? <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and, and that's what it's been all, all my life. I, I, I don't think I could function any other way. Yeah. I'd like to jump into your, your studio life. I have this question where I was wondering, what do you spend the most time doing, looking, making, or thinking? Sometimes it's a, it's a third, a third, and a third. Other yeah. times, uh, it's just making it. Well, when I was an abstractionist, you know, doing subjective work, um, there was never any preparatory sketches. There was never any of that. It was just I was presented with a big white space, and um, <clears throat> if the spirits, the muses, whatever, were with me, it would be bang an explosion. Um, one of the things that I was told that I was very good at was composing. Yeah. Um, in fact, I was at SMU. There was a um, an instructor who was from LSU, Louisiana State University, I believe, but Tulane, one or the other. His last name was Bonnard. Um, for some reason, I'm blanking on his, on his first name. It was a, a, a two-semester course in composition. Yeah. And I remember getting uh, the report card um, for the first semester, and it was like, D? the hell's freaking D? I never got a freaking D in art in my yeah. life. Math? Yeah, easy. That would be a good grade in math, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I said, you know, what's up? Is this an error or whatever? And he's like, no, it's not an error. I said, okay, I show up to every class. I've never cut a class. Yeah. Uh, one of the first ones in a room, one of the last ones out of the room. He said, yeah, I don't have any problem with any of that. So I suck at composition? No, just the opposite. So I got a D. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I like to think of Ricky Ricardo and Lucy. Lucy, explain this to me. <laughs> so he said, oh, it's really simple. You come in here. I give an assignment. Yeah. You bang it off. You're done. Okay. What's wrong with that? Well... Your classmates are scratching their heads. They're scratching their nuts. They're, you know, trying to do this. They start. They stop. They. St I mean, yeah. And you just like bang it off, and it's pretty damn good. Okay, I'm still really confused. You haven't answered my question. Why do I have a D? Well, and this was a, this was one of those valuable moments that you yeah. learn as a student that you pass on as an instructor. If you come into my classroom with a skill set. And you live leave my classroom with a skill set, no matter how high that skill set is. I failed as an instructor. I haven't taught you anything, and you as a student haven't grown. Yeah. So it's like, wow. So what do I do? He says, Well, I'll tell you what. You've got to do ten times as much work as your classmates. And what I'll do is I'll rescind the D, and I'll give you the A that you deserve. And I never, you know, I, I've always had difficulty with, with compliments. You know, we all want them. But I always feel like when I do speak about them, I, I feel um, as, a, as a, you know, I'm blowing, uh, blowing my horn or something like that. But anyway, as an abstractionist, I, one of my dreams was always to be able to get a palette of large canvases delivered to my studio, set them up and just paint. Yeah. Now, sometimes 
I could knock something off that was pretty good in 15 minutes. Other times, you know, I would struggle for a couple of hours, six hours or whatever. And at other times I would have situations where I would paint myself into a corner. Literally, I could not get myself out of this situation that I work my way into. But it was always those paintings that were pivotal. It was it was sort of like a, a mind, like a tug of war in my head. Yeah, just the the process of making them. Just the process of making it. Yeah. So I would go on, you know, and leave that. I would call it a corner painting or a pivot painting, or whatever. And I would go on and create other paintings, and you know, yeah. knock them off. But then that one one, you know that painting in the corner <laughs> we're back yeah. to that thing, you know, right? that painting in the corner would be staring at me going defeat me <laughs> you <laughs> know i get you <laughs> yeah yeah it became a personal kind of a of a of a thing so um you know people ask you about pro what's your process and you know, my process is i put on my pants i go downstairs to the studio and i paint you know yeah, yeah. um one of my biggest frustrations right now is i don't I don't have enough time because I've got the artist index. <clears throat> I'm doing the project co uh, coordination for the Dartmouth cultural center. I'm working on these other little side things that, um, not to be entertained or be kept busy, <clears throat> but I'm hoping I can turn a dime with them, you know? Yeah. I don't want to ramble on coming off anytime you want. So, all right, well, we'll cut it there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now I'm curious about recently you've seemed to have switched and I may have missed something along the way, but I was thinking about calling this episode changing the subject. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, based on your, your movement from abstraction to, I don't really want to call them representational, but there is obviously figures involved and uh, some narrative I would imagine you, you would probably call it. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know what the heck to call them. I, I've, I've been referring to them as social expressionism or something like that. Um, <clears throat> okay. There is no short stories with me, unfortunately. But <laughs> my, my wife, God bless her, um, um, is, is so many things. My mentor, my rock, every, everything. And she asks me the hard questions all the time. Like, um, you know, I get frustrated because uh, I'm not selling enough work and she will say something like, so do you want to be sustained by your work or do you want to be supported? Pick one. You can't have them both. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, in this, the this winter of 2019, the December actually, there was an art fair at um, 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 the Kilburn Mills. And uh, <clears throat> so I signed up for it, and uh, I brought a bunch of work over. Um, it was the beginning of December. Um, it's New Bedford. Not that that's a, a condescending remark. It's just before the holidays. People are looking for original, you know, inexpensive kind of things, you know, impulse kind of things. Yeah. So I wasn't going to be putting my hoity-toity uh, abstract stuff up. 
because I really didn't think it would sell, and and not at those prices, not at an art fair. I mean, you know, my work was fetching three to five thousand, and um, there was one piece. Well, actually, we'll back up a little bit. Uh, she was in a, she had an appointment, and she caught up with me after I had set up and brought all the work over. And the first words out of her mouth is, "What the hell is this? A clean out your garage sale?" <laughs> Or is this an art, art fair? And like, well, you know, and I explained to her what I just told you. She said, no, 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 no. You never, ever put out your second stuff. You always put out your first stuff. I don't care what the venue is. Yeah. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know. So there was this one painting of um, that I had done um, uh, early 80s. Um, um, uh, that was uh, of based on the theme of the Arctic, the New Bedford, New Bedford Arctic Whaling Expedition, or actually Disaster of 1871. It was always something that sort of uh, fascinated me. And it began, the fascination began when I was in uh, graduate school. I guess I was a little bit homesick and such. And uh, oddly enough, uh, they had had the gas explosions in New Bedford, um, where the historic district almost went in flames. It was in February and it was, you know, so fire and ice. And I thought it was a nice theme for my MFA thesis and blah, blah, blah. So <clears throat> I had revisited that because my work was all abstract. And I had dabbled um, um, in doing more narrative kind of, more, more uh, objective kind of work. And I uh, totally forgot about it. But that one painting was like sitting on a floor, leaning up against the, the leg of an easel. And that was the one painting that everybody was going up to. Yeah. And it was amazing. People were asking me, oh, is that Shackleton? Is that, you know, I mean, they seemed to be kind of knowledgeable about that kind of thing. Um, and oddly enough, because back in those days, there was no internet and uh, there wasn't a lot on the uh, New Bedford Arctic uh, whaling um, disaster. Uh, I had read... I think it's Survive by Ernest Shackleton uh, or a book on him uh, for some background information. And um, all the while, uh, across the, the aisle, you know, the, the, the booth directly in front of me was uh, an old friend, gallerist and artist, uh, Luis Villanueva. And uh, he and my wife are, uh, he, I always say, he fell in love with her the day he saw her. Those two are like unbelievable. They, 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 you know, so they're psychoanalyzing me and I can, you know, hear bits and pieces and stuff like that. It's like, you know, I'm here, you know. Um, and then this one guy comes in, um, uh, Mike Sadik, and um, he goes up to the painting and picks it up. Now, Luis says, you know, you didn't see what happened before he went up to your painting. I said, no, I didn't. He says, this guy walked into the room, you know, there's like the opening, the doorway. He rotates his head and he sees your painting and he made a beeline directly for it. Yeah. I said, oh. So he starts whispering to me, how much, how much, how much? I'm like, uh, he says, my wife is behind me. She's somewhere behind me. This, I want to buy her this for Christmas. I'm like, oh, so, you know, I told him my price. He said, fine. He said, put it aside. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll keep her, get her distracted and I'll come back and pay you for it. And can you deliver it to, to me? Because I don't want it anywhere near me because I don't want to ruin the surprise. Yeah, okay. So, Paula and Luis really got to talking seriously about me. And because um, they had a almost a very scientific, very clinical experience watching people's reaction to my work. And um, they started asking me why I 
went to do abstract. And um, it took a long time for me to unburden myself, so to speak. Um, abstract school got me in the University of Miami. Uh, that's how I, you know, excelled at SMU. Uh, and I stopped doing uh, narrative work, objective uh, um, objective work, because it was too painful. For some reason, I'm drawn. I don't want to even say the macabre. Uh, but basically, people in dilemmas. People yeah. in between a rock and a Arctic whaling disaster was all about guys on whaling that are getting crushed by the ice. And it's a matter of timing. How do you get the hell out of there once the ice starts to break up? You know, you really got to think your way through this mess to get out. Uh, but it became, and I started doing um, uh, work on the indigenous people and uh, the, a series of the of the Wild West of um, the lawlessness and how people were um, un, unfairly uh, taken advantage of. And I just gave it up. I couldn't stand it. So my journey on uh, with abstraction was that <clears throat> uh, my mantra at the very end was, I paint sang froid cold-bloodedly and my goal as an artist abstract artist is to paint nothing which is the highest goal an abstract painter can have it's very difficult to paint nothing yeah um but of course the moment you put a, hor a horizontal line in there you're screwed because <laughs> it's not landscape right yeah yeah that's it's going to be attached to one of my <clears throat> questions yeah so um Paula and, 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 and I'm being serious now, Paula and Luis had a very, very serious discussion and, and they came up to me and it, like, it was like a love fest. I mean, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was absolutely incredible. It was very, very emotional. And Paula says, I figured it out. I said, you figured it out why? She says, you've been burying your emotions all these years in your abstract work. You're hiding your emotions. And yet you've, you have, you, you've noticed that as much as you say that there's, they're, they're not emotional, you never don't paint with emotion. You notice women especially push back terribly and tell you that they're full of emotion. So, um, <clears throat> you know, they both said that that particular painting was pretty, pretty darn good. So why wouldn't I, why would I consider going back and doing it? Yeah. Well, it's a long, it's a lot easier to jump from a narrative objective situation in my opinion then it is to go from a subjective abstract situation that i was in um, they each have their own challenges um, in abstraction less is more and in objective narrative the composition is not just important but there are specific um, you know, as, as always in art, if it doesn't belong there, it shouldn't be there. But with the narrative, especially so. And the subject matter that I chose, um, my wife is black. And uh, I had just heard, in fact, I think most of America had just heard. And it's sad because this June, uh, just June 1st, um, it'll make the hundredth anniversary of the, um, and it's, there's so many names for it: the Tulsa massacre, the Greenwood massacre, the Black Wall Street massacre. It all has the word massacre on yeah. it. And what really got me was that the whites in um, Tulsa 
who were quite upset by the blacks who made out quite well because they 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 got some primo land in the, the Oklahoma oil fields and made out quite well. They had their own little society, their own little, almost like a little country within the city, the Greenwood section. They bombed them from the air. They bombed them. Can you believe that? Turpentine bombs. They dropped them from the airplanes and set and set the Greenwood section ablaze. Yeah. The riot lasted about a week. Uh, hundreds of people uh, were, were killed. Um, millions of dollars of property loss. It was, it was, you know, absolutely horrible. So <clears throat> here I am biting, taking a bite of an apple that um, I've avoided for a long, long time. Um, the emotional connection is my black family, our black daughter, my black great-grandson. And I had all these other things going on in my head emotionally, like, who am I as a white guy to be outraged by the outrage of, of by, by black, black, black outrage, if that makes any sense. And I was very, very timid about showing my work to anybody. Um, and, uh, so I showed it, uh, at first to uh, a group of, uh, my, my classmates from, uh, from SMU. We have a, a little group, uh, called Techum. Tagneri, Elliot, McCoy, um, uh, Tagneri, Elliot, Cummings, and McCoy. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no holes barred uh, with the critiques. It's not a, a love fest. And uh, they were, like, kind of taken back by it. And uh, so it took me four, a year to do four paintings. And uh, then this, the rest. This is the Greenwood series you're talking about. Greenwood series, yeah. I, yeah. I, I titled it um, "America's Guernica um, Greenwood," and um, I had a lot of interesting spiritual moments painting these paintings. My uh, father-in-law, whom I've never met, Doctor Mel uh, uh, Thomas Melvin Bachelor, he was a cardiologist. Uh, he was also an artist. Uh, he was a sculptor. And um, um, he went to medical school. Um, there's a story there, but he continued to sculpt and, and, and you know, be an artist uh, all of his life. And uh, uh, Paula and her sister say that uh, I, you know, we would have gotten along quite well because our personalities are very much the same. Uh, kind of an interesting thing, but I could feel his presence. Uh, and the voice in my head told me to stop at 10. So this would be the first suite of 10 in the series. I will revisit it at a certain time, but I've got to go off and do some other stuff. So that's that's all I've been concentrating on now is is that kind of subject matter. And um, I went back to the Arctic whaling thing. Um, the first one came off like water off a duck's back. The second one gave me nightmares there was my ego was kind of um kicked uh and then i realized the reason why the second one wasn't coming out is because i was just dealing with the fanciful the the subject matter but there was no emotional connection so the yeah. the, the abstract guy who didn't want to have any emotion 
is now having trouble because now he can't reconnect with his emotions. <laughs> it was really a challenge then, like sort of a yeah. Um, I just really like how they're painted in in maybe in the formal or a- abstract way or even technique. Like it seems like there's are they oil? Uh, th- these series? No, they're acrylic. Oh, okay. They're- they're acrylic, and two things happened while they're, they're being painted is all of the techniques that I used in my abstraction, you know, my abstract work, all came into play. Yeah. Uh, but there's also this weird out-of-body kind of experience where my hands would be laying stuff down, and it'd be like, damn, I don't know who the hell's controlling my hands, but it ain't me. <laughs> <laughs> like, it, you know, I know it makes for good ad copy, and that's what I used to do for 40 years, but uh, seriously, it's been... It's been um, it's been an experience. Yeah. Um, I found a photograph of my father um, when he was living at our family farm up in Canada uh, that that intrigued the heck out of me, and I was going to start that series, but <clears throat> something happened uh, uh, recently. Um, uh, my uh, sister-in-law, uh, Karen Bachelor, is the first black woman admitted into the Daughters of the American Revolution. Uh, It was a 38-year battle between Marian Anderson, who was not allowed to sing at uh, Colonial Hall, uh, a Constitution Hall, um, to the point where uh, Karen proved that she had ancestry that went back to the Revolutionary War. Um, And uh, she has uh, her podcasts out uh, that are produced by a... uh, um, a, an organization that is affiliated with, but not legitimately connected. In other words, uh, you know, uh, they're uh, the host, I believe, hostess. She's a uh, a member, but it's not a sanctioned podcast. <clears throat> and one of the stories was uh, that uh, the third great grandmother, her name was Charity Ann, uh, lived. Uh, in Virginia and uh, was sold off. Her and her sister were sold off and taken away to Georgia, to Harris County, Georgia. Yeah. And uh, this is um, oral history handed down to those generations. Um, <clears throat> the mother ran after the wagon, screaming, you know, hysteria. I mean, imagine horror. Yeah. And um, shouting out, bye-bye, my baby. Uh, bye-bye, my sweet babies. I'll see you in the by-and-by. Which I think there's a clue in there somewhere. Uh, but the by-and-by was uh, was a euphemism for uh, heaven. Yeah. And it's in a lot it of just, songs. Old, yeah. Yeah. And, ju- and there's just something about that scene that uh, just ripped me apart. So I'm starting that series. Yeah. And it's coming together with my visual resources that I'm you know, putting. This this one this one, I have flashes of what it is I want to do, and that's another thing too. I I have these flashes. I'll see the the piece done in my head. Um. Uh, and um, so I'm 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 uh, I'm just a little frustrated. I can't get into the studio because I'm dying yeah. to get into. The in like prep for this, I just in watching you know you post on Facebook, it's I just I'm like wow he must paint a real lot, <laughs> even though you're saying you can't get in the studio. 
just seeing the the works come out, which is pretty cool. Um, because they seem really involved. Like, I don't know, just technique wise, like I was trying to get at earlier. Um, like I don't know how you control, um, your washes to make a figure. You know, uh, to me that is, it's like you're 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 show, showing and sharing your your drawing chops, if you will, which is just nice <clears throat> for the series. Well, um, to be honest with you, um, the series that uh, I had done, there was it was basically graphite on on um, on um, arches at the University of Miami, the Wild West series. Um, I started um, approaching it, looking at the old daguerreotypes and such, and then the work started to evolve to have a little of, of abstraction in it. Of the later works um and um i started using stencils so i would do a drawing of a figure and then cut a stencil and then i could uh, i actually i used the stenciling quite a bit for my printmaking when i was doing uh, you know printing and um so i utilized that as well um doing the paintings yeah um and uh, it, it 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 seems to work um my friend, uh, art writer and art critic Don Wilkinson, um, you know, he's written a couple of reviews. One of them in particular, where he described my um, scribblings and scratchings, which I, you know I've always have been haunted by the presence of Cy Twombly ever since graduate school. Even though I never knew who he was, and when I heard his name, I thought he was um, another student at the university and didn't pay yeah. attention. I didn't want that in my head. But anyway, he reviewed this one show and he talked about um, Martian calligraphy and a meteorological madman and, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And people thought, oh my God, I thought you guys were friends and go out and have beers and everything. And and um, and what, it wasn't until I interviewed him uh, on a pot, for a podcast that he told me, he said, um, you know, I look at your work I'm kind of stunned by it because I think I'm looking at the answer to a question I've never pondered. And I said to him, Don, that's either like so much bullshit or the most profound thing I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, he went along and there was this interesting thing uh, <clears throat> with the Greenwood series, the biplane, uh, the biplane was the evil thing. I mean, just imagine yeah. hearing it seeing it, you know, coming over a house, a rooftop. And Paula was, uh, you know, for critique, I asked her, and she's like, do you have to have the biplane and everything? She says, because with or without it, if you take it out, it's still a relevant, it's still relevant. People are still doing this in black neighborhoods. Yeah. This is still, you know, so. Oh, um, it's like current, like as well? Yeah. 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 It's, you know, it's, nothing's really changed. If you, you know, I mean, this Black History Month in particular, there's been so much that has finally bubbled up. I don't know if it's because of um, George Floyd, uh, the pandemic, but there's so much like raw, um, unvarnished um, data coming out. Yeah. And um, uh, stuff that was never ever spoken about. Uh, so I said, well, the biplane represents audacity. It's it's symbolic. It, you know, it's audacity. Yeah. So okay. So now. <clears throat> um, uh, Don doesn't, he wrote an article uh, on me 
uh, that he does for Artbeat for the Standard Times, New Bedford Standard Times, uh, the Coasting Magazine section. And he, um, I, I have to look because I, I don't remember, um, he either referred to the new work that I did as beautifully audacious or audaciously beautiful. I think it was beautifully audacious. And then he said um, that he really got it. He loved it, you know, um, and he's, he's happy that he could finally tell me, you know, something really super positive about the work. Um, it's funny, you know, we're, we're channels. We, we just, you know, we get, um, stimulus from so many different. Yeah. And then you uh, just get to elaborate on that, yeah. that imagery that's in your head and yeah, it's really something. It's nice to get this look inside what you're doing and, you know, this, the steps, so to speak, that, it, that seems very organic. So it's, it's kind of interesting to hear you share about the, the work. And a, a lot of these series with the figures are coming through they're, they're Some of them are newer and some of them are older. Um, how do you mean that? Like say, how many of them have you done in the past year? Like what series have you? Well, I did, I did, uh, the, the Greenwood series. I did, uh, I did 10 pieces and the Arctic, uh, willing disaster. I've uh, done four. Yeah. Um, and again, the, listening to that voice in my head don't know if it's dr bachelor I've, I've, I've told people that but uh i uh those are 24 by 24s and um i've got four 12 by 16s that i want to now uh do uh like vignettes i want to focus on the, on the figure more than on the whale ships and the the yeah. environment uh so when those four are done they're done and then i'm going to begin the um the the charity and uh series okay uh, with a, a, a series of, uh, I think, 14 by 14 inch. And the sizes are important to me. Um, the sizes um, are but, not, or they are? Well, they are. They are. Yeah. For some weird reason, I, I can't explain it. Uh, but uh, I'm going to start the Charity and series with the 14 by 14 um, uh, canvases. I think it's about six of them. Then I'm going to work up to the, um, the 24 by 24s. Yeah, uh, we'll just see where it goes. I mean, I don't know how much juice I'm going to have left in me um, when I when I'm finished. Yeah, they're they're they seem to be pretty involved, uh, and and as does your abstract work. Uh, as far as like, you know, material application and different even different tools. Do you? I was curious about one of the things for your abstract works. If you had like a <laughs> A secret tool that that, uh, or if you want to keep that tool secret, that's fine too. But. No, I I use uh, I use spray bottle, you know, uh, with just plain water on it for, you know, to loosen up the paint. Um, I I work in uh, glazes primarily. Yeah. I think one of the things that killed me on that second uh, Arctic uh, whaling thing was, um, um, there was too much of an application of white. Um, <clears throat> um, instead of using the whiteness of the canvas, letting that come through. So to me, it was like I, I sort of dulled or deadened the, the, the surface. Uh, but that's it's basically a series of, of glazes is what it is. Um, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I, I just like the sparkle of it. 
I, I'm yeah. not an impossible guy, you know. <clears throat> uh, not much op- opacity. It's it's yeah. all translucent. Now, how do you thin down your acrylics? Uh, just basically water, and then my glazes are a polymer, uh, polymer medium, sometimes tinted. Most of the times tinted. Yeah, I do yeah. uh, uh, tinted glazes in between uh, every phase. You know, I just I do a tinted are... glaze. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And I use, um, <clears throat> you know, cardboard, um, you know, like old credit cards or the things you get in the mail that, you know, like fake credit cards. I use those um, sometimes for, I'll, I'll apply paint. Well, for the abstract stuff, I'd apply paint directly to the canvas from the tube and then just use those to, like, squeegee it on. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I uh, you know, use the cardboard now for mostly horizon lines and, uh, and edges and such. Um um, nothing outlandish, you know, um, I've got like set, you know, lots and lots of brushes, but I, I only use, it's, it's kind of weird. I only use like three or four, Yeah, yeah. three or four now where I was doing my abstract, I use a two inch throwaway board bristle Chinese dollar store brush, you know, yeah, yeah until yeah. I walk out. So. Oh, and some of these, uh, paintings you're talking about, uh, they're not on your website yet. No, I haven't series? put them on my, on my website. No. Okay. No. I'll post a few on the blog post so that the listeners can check them out at outcast.com okay. if they're. Yeah, I, that's another thing. I'm so far behind that, uh, you know, they are on my Instagram and my uh, Facebook, but they're not on my, my website. Uh, uh, that's another project that I've got to get into. I've got to get that updated. But yeah. What's your um, Instagram handle? If they call uh, it. It's that? Ron. 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 Dot <laughs> Fortier, uh, I believe. Ron.Fortier, okay. Yeah, Now, something about the the gestures or movements in your abstract paintings, which there's parts of that in the other the newer series, but um, I was curious if you were a sports fan at all of any... any... No, my no? wife is okay. a sports fan, not me, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. or fencing by any chance? Uh, no, the closest I ever came to fencing was when I worked in theater. I was a set designer okay. uh, for the opera, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, well, that can I, probably explain your compositions for the the Greenwood and the Whaling disaster. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I get these flashbacks to when I was um, doing sets for, for the opera. Um, I was in high school, uh, and I had a, my senior English instructor uh was also the guy that was uh, challenged with running a drama club and uh, they did uh, oliver and i can't remember how the heck he found out that i had artistic abilities but um i ended up designing the sets for oliver it was the first set i ever designed and he was impressed and i didn't know that he was friends with the colbert's um Madame Jacqueline Bazinet Colbert and um, uh, Maestro um, Joseph Colbert, they ran the opera department at UMass, uh, SMU. And um, <clears throat> so uh, I started doing sets for them, uh, Deflate a Mouse, um, 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 uh, Così Fan Tutti, uh, you know, all of the classics. And then they were friends with uh, somebody whose voice I had in my ear as a child in New York City, uh, Boris Goldovsky. Um, 
and uh, I got to work for Maestro Goldovsky. Um, and because of that, I was offered a job with Boston Ballet to redo the Nutcracker, uh -huh. um, which I, I uh, turned down because uh, uh, only five minutes before I found out that my uh, first wife was uh, pregnant with our daughter and I had to be on the road for 50 weeks out of the year and I didn't want to take a chance on my first child not being there and so on and so forth. Right. So, uh, yeah, the set design, uh, the, the composition you know, characters entering, you know, stage right, stage left, that kind of thing. Um, uh, the, 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 there is kind of a theatrical mindset or structure to it. Yeah. yeah. Funny that you mentioned that. Yeah, I just think, um, I don't know where it comes from, you know, like like in a, a linear way, but it uh, I couldn't help but think of it because of the figures, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention the other elements, like the, even the, the plane or the, the ship's just adding mm -hmm. to the overall composition of leading you in and leading you back out. No, the, the, the Arctic ones, as much as I'm not that thrilled about, it's amazing the, the feedback I've gotten from them and people are reading things uh, into them. Uh, not that they're, you know, totally uh, um, uh, off base, um, but there's there. I guess I was more successful creating them than I thought I was. Yeah, no, they're really something. I really appreciate seeing them. All right, I just have this question that I always like to ask the guests. Can you use three to five words to describe your work? Now, this could be the abstractions or... The... Well, I'll stick to the, to the new stuff. Three okay. to five words, huh? Okay, people caught in severe dilemmas. Yeah. Um... The, the other thing that I haven't explored as of yet, <clears throat> when I was a kid, uh, and, and even, you know, uh, came into my adult uh, life, um, I could not watch a Jerry Lewis movie to the end without being in pain. Yeah. It's like, it's a comedy. What the hell are you talking about? Well, there would always be like three quarters of the movie where he was doing some crazy ass thing so bad that it would be so embarrassing that I was embarrassed for the character and I wish he would stop doing that to himself. You know, it was like self-deprecation or something. And it would hurt me physically, like yeah. iron butterflies in my stomach. Um, I, I've read uh, uh, Joyce Carey's um, A Horse's Mouth um, six times, but never to the end because I couldn't, because Gully Jimson, the main character, is just completely... Um, deconstructing, uh, devolving, uh, falling apart. And I can't take that. Yeah. I, so I'm wondering how this goes into the work that I'm doing, you know? Yeah. It's just like the, just a situation where there's people involved that I guess stirs up some kind of, some kind of emotion or feeling and it's uncomfortable or even, yeah. 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 So you had a physical response. Yeah. I was curious about I you know we're we're still still dealing with a pandemic and I know as you and I have spoken previously at various points uh I know you you love and enjoy the cafes so mm. I just wanted to ask you if you could have coffee with anyone from history or someone that's still with us and what would you ask them or talk to them about Wow um 
so many people to uh, have a conversation with. Um, I would really have loved to have spoken to Mark Rothko. Yeah. Um, here's here's a guy who painted nothing, who created a uh, a style that no one else. I don't think you can point to anything that looked like that before Mark Rothko. A guy that was so um, connected to color that he committed. He opened up his veins in a studio over yeah. a sink because of color. Um, I mean, obviously he had other issues, but the power of color. I've heard of people uh, who have seen his work live, like in Chapel Hill, um, open, openly weeping, yeah. having no idea why they're weeping. And, and that's a guy I'd like to really speak with. Yeah. I, I, I like that. I didn't in a million years think that you would bring up Mark Rothko. Not that I had anyone in mind for you, but yeah, that was really cool. Thanks. Um, you know, there, there are others, uh, uh, you know, people who uh, are more objective. Um, um, Joseph Malord, William Turner is yeah. somebody I, I would like to have had coffee with. Um, because the slave ship, um, somebody brought up something about my work in the slave ship, uh, one of his most famous paintings ever. Um, and there was just something about him, um, you know, the vortex. He was the inventor of the vortex. Um, and then the final guy would be <clears throat> um, Vincent Van Gogh, because nobody cool says Van Gogh. <laughs> Vincent, <laughs> Vincent Van Gogh, um, because there was a soul there. Uh, I read I read his book, the last big one that came out a couple of years back. There's this story I I don't, I don't remember completely, but um, he likened looking up into a starry night and seeing all the stars to a railroad map. And uh, each each star de it was a, was a location, a designation, a, a destination. And he looked at the railroad map, and he'd say, you know, I can go from this point to this point here on Earth by train. Yeah. But the only way to get to those points is to, is by dying. It was just something completely profound. By yeah. the guy was really connected, but unfortunately, he had his devils that he had to deal with. Um, you know, and, uh, I mean, his sister-in-law, uh, Theo's wife thought the world of him. Um, so there had to be yeah. something to be said about him. It's, um, well, in the recent years, his work has gotten a lot more attention, uh, you know, with, with movies and what have you. Yeah. 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 There's just something, you know, that writhing in his work. That writhing is not just a visual thing; it's an internal, visceral thing. This this uh, constant struggle, and and, and and I'll you know be honest with you. That's one of, you know as I told you, that's one of the reasons why I get I stayed away from that. It just yeah. eats me up. It eats me up too much. So yeah, to feel deeply. Yeah. Something about the way he saw, you know, it just seems like it was like a. It's it's so hard to take an idea and put it on canvas. And have it be anything like the idea 
at the, in the beginning or even how you see. Mm-hmm. But it seems like Van. I won't even try to say it. you'll call me a dork. Gah. Gah. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, um, the way that he could do that. Yeah, yeah, and you know, never thought he was good enough, and yeah, it's horrible. Let's see. Let's see if we can turn things around. Get a little more. Yeah, <laughs> a, yeah lighter, a little more lighthearted. Yeah, lighter yeah. tone. <laughs> yeah. So I was curious if you have any quotes you'd like to share. The one that I go back to most of the time is uh, Van Gogh. Uh, is uh, is uh, Picasso. Um, you know, where art is a lie, a lie which helps us to perceive the truth. And I, that's really quite profound because really it's all fake. I mean, you know, the, you know, Rene Magritte, Cecina Pas and Tip, this is not a pipe. Yeah. You know, I remember having these massive discussions when I was teaching art history in class, and they're like, "Whoa, well, if it's not a pipe, what the hell is it?" It's like, "No, no, no." And then you know, you gotta wait. You gotta wait until somebody goes, like, "Hey, wait a minute, it's a painting of a pipe." It's like, "Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it is." So it's yeah. it's basically those two things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes from an artist, and also my uh, instructor. Uh, and mentor at uh, SMU, Herbert Cummings, is one man's asparagus is another man's broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you into the asparagus or the broccoli? It all depends. Yeah. yeah okay. It's, uh, you know, uh, it all depends on what side of the what side of the vegetable table you're sitting on. You know. Yeah. 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 But uh, <laughs> I was I always thought that that was interesting. You know, it's what we bring to, it's what we bring to things. Yeah. Uh, Ernst Gombrich, uh, who wrote the story of art, uh, still one of my favorite art historians. Um, he only died a few years ago. I mean, he lived to be quite old. Um, he's the story of art. I mean, all, you know, Jansen and and Abrams and those guys. It was like so dry. It was like a catalog. It was like a CS catalog. But but Gombrich really really. Um, made it human and he talks about something called the the um, viewers share and basically it's like okay regardless of what the uh, artist intended it's not as valid as how it's been received by the viewer <clears throat> so if the viewer walks away thinking that you know a horrible scene uh, either because of ignorance or, or, or some other matter or just bad interpretation by the artist. If the viewer thinks that it's a party scene versus an execution scene, that's what it is. Because right. it is a, it, in this particular case, I guess it's the two-legged stool, you know, versus the three-legged stool. So, Do you think the artist is outnumbered by the viewer? And the different, like, sort of reception of their, like, any one given painting or? Well, that's where it gets a little funny because individual uh, individual opinion somehow turns into group opinion, which somehow turns into public opinion. And somehow the work gets lost. So I was used to, 
uh, tell students this, you know, iconic work dies the moment it becomes iconic. Um, um, the Pieta, people have seen the Pieta a bazillion times. But has anybody ever really looked at the face of Mary? Here's a woman who has come to the point where the prophecy has been fulfilled. She knew she was going to outlive her son. That's got to be the greatest, that is the greatest pain a parent can ever, yeah. uh, ever, ever endure, is to survive their child. And she's just sitting there with, it, with his adult body, you know, draped over her. She's holding him, cradling him. Um, but again, it's become so plasticized, so um, people really aren't, they don't, they're not paying attention anymore, you know, yeah. because it became an icon. You know, uh, it's the same thing with the Mona Lisa. You know, f people have looked at it so many times that they've never really seen it. Yeah. Uh, and once you start looking at it, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, that in particular is, is kind of an interesting piece of artwork because um, it's constantly changing. If you look into the left corner, the left-hand corner of the painting, it shifts. If yeah. you look at it in the middle, it shifts. You know, it's like, whoa, you know, what the heck's going on? <laughs> um, and then just quickly, uh, I remember watching a bioflick, uh, Julian Schnabel, the, the painter, Hollywood producer, uh, filmmaker, um, who did the bioflick on um, Basquiat. And there's that scene at the beginning of the movie where Basquiat uh, and his mom are in a doorway. He's quite young. They must have just come over from Haiti. And on the wall is the Guernica, Picasso's Guernica. And for some reason, um, I don't know if I saw it when I was a kid when it was in New York, but it just jolted me when I saw it. Yeah. There's just something about that scene that just sort of rattled me. But there's another, another icon that you look at, you look at it, but you don't see it, you know. Yeah. Now I was curious to close if you had any fa other favorite artists you'd like to bring up or some shout outs uh, well local artists Steve Remick um, uh, has uh, fast become one of my, my favorite uh, uh, painters uh, uh, I think he's hit with he hit a, a level i mean he was always good to begin with but he hit a level when he hit those you know the pandemic nurses the series that he did uh there's just something that just clicked inside of his head that it's just um his last pieces that he posted on facebook were um the preserve uh, in dartmouth uh, this this path that he's constantly referring to but he uh they're not uh, it's a nocturne uh, he did three pieces, as I told him in the comment. I think they're a triptych and they should be kept together. Um, but there's just something about them being a metaphor for the pandemic. Yeah. This is path into the woods. You know, you can see dusk. Um, uh, the sky is more dusk. Uh, so you can see the path somewhat. But there's just something. It's not brooding. It's not like Frank Grace, the photographer's photographs are kind of interesting uh they 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 they're like time 
time machine photographs, you know, of a, of a place. Um, uh, and as far as uh, any other painters are concerned, uh, you know, uh, around, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many of them. Um, um, but I'll, I'll just I'll just stick with Steve Steve Remick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for sharing so much. You're welcome. I, I hope it wasn't too much. <laughs> no, no. It it I didn't have to ask many questions because you kind of answered them. <laughs> uh, uh, pent up, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> no, no. It just you know there's a there was like a little bouncing ball that you know as time went on throughout the interview that kind of completed something you said previously and what have you. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. kind of a cool journey. Yeah. Well, let me it's, it's just also, stop. I'm sorry. It's also sort of like psychotherapy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's helpful to talk about your work. I mean, and especially when you get, no matter what it is, like whether it's a conversation that's not recorded or something that is, or it's somebody's, somebody's podcast different from a previous podcast you've been on or whatever, and mm -hmm. you kind of walk in and you think, I'm going to be prepared for this. I'm going to be precise or clear and direct. And, and then all of a sudden you're meandering, but it's, it's all the same, you know, cause you, it's for, it's for the artist and it's for the listener, you know? Yeah. 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 I, um, you know, as I tell the people who are my guests on my podcast, um, I don't have an agenda. Um, if I know you, that's great. If I don't know you, I'll get to know you. It's just a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea about the cafes and such is, um, we really need that again. We really need to get uh, to a place where a bunch of people are just sitting at tables and discussing art yeah. for art's sake. And that's it. Yeah. 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 No politics, no sports. We're talking art. Right. right. You know, uh, unloading, you know, because we are isolated. We were isolated before the pandemic as, as painters, especially. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you have to share those ideas. You cannot. You cannot move forward. Um you can't be the same from point A to point B. You have to pick up something between those two points. Yeah. That changes you or adds to you or takes away from you. Because sometimes taking away is just as valid as adding. Right. It's like, so. a, like a marble sculpture, if you will. Exactly. Exactly. Big thanks to Ron Fortier for being on the show. Be sure to check out more of Ron's work at ronfortier.net or on his Instagram, ron.fortier, or at otcast.com to see his abstract works and narrative works side by side. This has been Otcast. I'm your host, Philip J. Mellon. Thanks for listening, and keep the dialogue going. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let me ask you this. Define abstract art. Oh, come on. Okay, here's a better one. What does this painting mean? I'm getting nowhere with this. Forget it. Hotcast Home is A-H-T-C-A-S-T dot com. Thanks again. Sounds like the party's over.
but you can still stay connected. Otcast Audio is on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher, and now on Google Podcasts. Otcast Social on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Let's not forget about Instagram. Thanks for tuning in.